Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Friends, this is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this story of weeping, of lamentation, and yet of hope. Grant to us, O Lord, your Holy Spirit, to illumine this, the very word of God to us and bring us into the presence of the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, even this Jesus of Nazareth, about whom we read here. Jesus, thank you that because you have died and have risen, you open the gates of heaven to us by grace and grace alone, by virtue of what you have done. Father, bring us to you, send us into the world as emissaries of this great story and mercy. Do a good work now, we pray. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Please be seated. Jim, you must be really busy right now. Jim, I know that December is crazy for pastors. I hear that a lot. I hear that all the time during this season. And some of you, including over the past couple of weeks, you've said, Jim, you've got to be really busy right now. Some of you have prayed that prayer for me over the past couple of weeks. I'm nothing but grateful for the sentiment that you're telling me, and you maybe tell other pastors as well, December, Advent season, you must be crazy busy. I appreciate it, but here is a little secret for you. 
oftentimes, that might not be true. It might not be 100% true, at least at one level. Quite often, during December, during the Advent season, I'm a little less busy than usual. A couple different reasons for that. One is our great staff, headed by Eric Mitchell, our executive pastor, on down the line. Preparation for Advent for this Christmas season begins way early in the fall, so we're not scrambling around at the last minute to figure out, hey, are we going to have a Christmas Eve service? When do we do it? Unlike the NFL, we don't postpone. Hmm. Christmas Eve. Go Eagles. On Tuesday, apparently. So there's that level of scheduling there. And then in addition to that, part of my pleasure of being a pastor is people will tell me, hey, Jim, let's get together sometime. That, that, that happens a lot. Maybe we grab a coffee. Maybe we grab a beer. Jim, let's connect. Those types of interactions, conversations, one-on-one sit-downs, they actually happen a little less frequently during December, during the Christmas season. And these are the types of contacts, the types of sit-downs, the types of meetings. They're not emergencies, but instead it's, hey, let's catch up, or let's get to know each other a little bit better. So I'll put it this way to you. Because you're more busy during Christmas season or Advent, I am less busy. You see how that works? Because you're more busy, I am a little less busy. And so it's great to be able to use a time like this, take a little more space in the calendar to think about and build out future plans. However, there is one exception to me oftentimes being a little less busy during the Advent season, and it's this emergencies spike. Personal emergencies, family emergencies, they very often spike specifically during the holiday season, from Thanksgiving to Christmas through New Year's. Those sorts of things cluster together as breaking points happen. And I'll get these calls. It goes something like this. Jim, I'm so sorry to call you right now. You must be really busy during Christmas season, but I didn't know what else to do. Those are the types of emergencies that come to a head because this season brings pressures of different kinds. The holidays, Christmas season, might bring financial pressure your way. It might bring family pressure your way. It might bring performative or expectational pressures your way. And on top of that, something like substance abuse goes through the roof during the holiday season. I was pretty sure, but I went and checked anyway online with the help of Mr. Googly. I can tell you that alcohol sales for December dwarf all of the other months of the year. Or one of the things that I'm pleased to do here locally is that I'm a chaplain for police, fire, and rescue here in Collingswood. Once a year, we have an annual Christmas dinner for our first responders, where the chaplains of Collingswood, all these restaurants on Haddon Avenue, they donate food, so get to spend some time, a meal of appreciation for our first responders. And they will tell you, as they did this past Tuesday with me, that things are crazy in the holiday situation because there are so many domestic situations. They get more calls because people are under more pressure and they're more high. Maybe for you. For one of these reasons or other ones, you face times during the Christmas season, during the holidays, when you'll say something like, I'm done. I can't. Help. Maybe you've been there in past years. 
maybe you are there this year. And one of the great and abiding ironies for me that I face and I feel from Christmas season to Christmas season to Christmas season is that we are united in our loneliness. This can be an incredibly stressful and isolating season, but then we look out and say, everybody else is having this great time of deep connection in so many ways, but I'm left out. I'm not. It's harder for me. Well, understand that you are not alone. And ironically, we are part of this lonely crowd when we all feel isolated together. In the story that I read to you from Matthew's Gospel just a couple minutes ago, this is the last Christmas story in the Gospel of Matthew. And you might say, well, wait just a second here. There aren't any angels, there aren't any shepherds, there aren't any wise men really in this story anymore. There's no manger, there's no frankincense, there's no gold, there's no myrrh. Get this out of here. This is not a Christmas story, Jim. And I'd say, okay, you're kind of right, except the balancing perspective This is the last story in Matthew's Gospel, one of the four narrative accounts of Jesus' life, where Jesus is still a baby or a young child. And right after this, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 3, we get John the Baptist and then a grown Jesus. So it makes sense to me to include this in our little Advent mini-series, Wise Men, Wise Guys, and Emmanuel, Matthew's Gospel here, concluding with Matthew chapter 2. But there's another reason not just because there are four stories and four Sundays in Advent, that I am excited to include it here, because in this story, in this Christmas story, there are things like weeping, things like mourning, things like lamentation. More than that, things like mass murder and a refugee story. And so either if your Christmas or your life is pretty rough in various ways, you can put yourself in this Christmas story. Let Jesus carry you by faith. Let Jesus carry your story and there find hope. So three parts for the rest of the way, talking about Jesus carrying us. Let's talk from this flight to Egypt, Matthew chapter 2. Let's talk about how Jesus can carry our story, how Jesus carries our struggle, and then also how Jesus carries our sin. Jesus carrying our story, our struggles, and our sins. Jesus carry us even now. Thanks, by the way, for the feedback that I've received about the Liberty Collingswood blog that has launched a few weeks ago. It's great. Patrick McAdams, our digital ministry director, and I, we met for a lot of hours this past Friday. More stuff to come, building out from here as Liberty Collingswood increasingly becomes your lifestyle brand of choice as part of the Represents Initiative, Third Way Walk and Worldview. We want to build out our content that we're able to give to you. A couple weeks ago, I wrote a blog post about some of my favorite pop Christmas songs, and one of the ones that I mentioned, a couple of you give me feedback about this, late 1960s, Simon and Garfunkel, Silent Night, 7 o'clock news. The story goes like this in the song. It's a gorgeous rendition as you begin listening to Silent Night, 7 o'clock news of Silent Night. It's led by Art Garfunkel. If you haven't heard Art Garfunkel sing before, he is the best. Art Garfunkel, the voice of an angel. And the name, 
of a Garfunkel. But it works out really well. He's a great singer. So you're taken in by this amazing sterling rendition of Silent Night, but then fades in this voiceover of a news anchor who's just talking through the nightly news. So on one hand, you're hearing Art sing, Silent Night, Holy Night, all is calm, all is bright. But then this news anchor drones on about turmoil in the U.S. and around the world. This is late 1960s. So political turmoil, race riots, Vietnam War. And this mashup is jarring, but it's also fitting. Because in a lot of ways, isn't Christmas kind of like that for us? We have the hope, but then we also have the hardship. We have both which also is like Matthew chapter 2 in its entirety. So last week, the visit of the Magi, the visit of the wise men to Jesus, that's sort of like the silent night. Everything is great, sleeping in heavenly peace. But then with this part, the second half of Matthew chapter 2, these are the headlines. This is the hardship. This is where it gets rough. And the story begins at the beginning, the first couple of verses of Matthew 2, starting with verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and then he departed to Egypt. Thus begins the famous flight to Egypt of Joseph and Mary and the young child, Jesus. So they go down to Egypt, and then they come back again. Within the span of the same story, there is a return, verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Egypt, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went back to the land of Israel. And here's where it gets interesting. Where have we heard this story before? Promised land to Egypt, to promised land again. If you're a reader of the scriptures, or an ancient audience here, you might be wondering, where have I heard this story before? That Indiana Jones map, where you have the red dot and the red lines as the plane, trains, and automobiles go from place to place to place. This arc, this story of promised land, down to Egypt and back again. Where have we heard this story before? Why? That's the story of Israel. When the big thing that happened in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, is exactly that. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you know some of the story, making their way to the Promised Land, but through the story of Joseph. There's this descent down into Egypt, and then an exodus coming back again through Joshua and Judges and Kings, First and Second Samuel. We're getting back to the Promised Land. That ark we see here fulfilled in Jesus. And then there are even some specific connections between Jesus' early life and Moses. He was the leader of that exodus, that flight from Egypt, not to Egypt, but from Egypt. Moses was the leader there. So here in this story, we have an evil ruler who feels threatened and does something horrible to try to stamp out the threat, killing all of the Israelite boys under two. And yet, 
by divine intervention, in this case, Jesus, Joseph the dad is told in a dream, get out of here, go to Egypt. The deliverer is delivered. Same with Moses. As Moses is born, the evil ruler there feels threatened and sets out to kill all of the Israelite boys. And yet, by divine intervention, a baby placed in a basket, discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. This divine intervention delivers the deliverer, even Moses. There are these overlays of Israel's story here onto Jesus. And it can't get even more explicit than that as we see that there are these Old Testament quotations that are taken and applied to Jesus. Verse 16, more overlay. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, quoting the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. So very intentionally, we have this story overlay as well. Jeremiah chapter 31, which in its original context speaks to the ancient Israelites going into exile. That was the other big event. There was the exodus down to Egypt, exodus back again to the promised land. But that doesn't stick forever. They're taken captive first north to Assyria, then south to Babylon. And that voice of weeping and lamentation heard in Ramah, that city, that region, was actually the path of exile for the ancient Israelites in Judah that were carried captive to Babylon. And it's as if there was this new exile to sin and death and the devil. And just as in Jeremiah 31, if you continue to read from this quote in that passage, go back and read. God says, I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to make a new covenant with my people Israel. I'll write their law on my hearts. I'm going to bring them back. In Jesus now, there is even a new and bigger exodus from this exile. And I love the verse before that, verse 15. Hosea 11.1, another Old Testament prophet quoted here by Matthew. And they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is Hosea. Out of Egypt I called my son. Interesting part here. This text from Hosea in its original context was not considered a messianic text, was not considered a prophecy about the Messiah to come. And if you go back, I'd encourage you to do it today or this week and read from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 and following, out of Egypt I called my son. That's a reference, God speaking of that exodus, and Israel is personified in this verse as God's son. So talking about collectively, all of those ancient Israelites, yes, I brought back my son. I brought back the nation of Israel. But then here we have Matthew taking that verse and saying, in the fullness of time as Jesus has come, the full meaning of this verse is not any and every Israelite, but out of Egypt as Joseph and Mary and Jesus, my son, return. Out of Egypt, I have called my son to a new deliverance to come. And so very intentionally on the part of Matthew, the writer of this gospel, deftly, masterfully, in just a few verses, Matthew is showing that Jesus fulfills. 
Jesus embodies. Jesus climactically recapitulates the entire story of Israel and God's deliverance. Which means for us, for us, whether Israelite or Gentile, whether Jewish person or non-Jewish person, there is an invitation for us. Let Jesus carry your story. Take steps of faith to this Jesus. Let Jesus carry your story. And you might think, well, that sounds kind of fancy. I like stories. Stories are cool. But that's impossible. How can somebody else carry my story? That doesn't make any sense. Well, I would suggest to you that we actually do that fairly often without using those words without knowing it, especially in our media and especially in our music. So I realize that I'm stamping myself here by date and demographic. Like many white suburban teenagers in the early 90s, grunge was ascendant. And the music of grunge told our story. That's Pearl Jam, that's Nirvana, they're kind of the big two. Stone Temple Pilots and Temple of the Dog and Soundgarden. On down the line, grunge might be your jam, grunge might not be your jam, totally fine. But at that time and in that place, they were telling our stories. And here's a particular one. When I was in high school, I was on the debate team because it was cool, obviously. And so I would go to speech and debate tournaments. And at least I grew up in New Orleans. And the way that speech and debate tournaments happened back then is that there were two sides. You had the debaters and then you had the drama. So debate and dramatic performance, little one-person shows or two-person shows of brief length, they were all in the same speech tournaments. And I'll tell you this, when you got to those speech tournaments, you didn't have to ask kid by kid, hey, are you here for debate or drama? Because you could kind of tell by by looking at them which which way they went in terms of debate or drama. But there was this one friend of mine in 10th grade. Her name was Stephanie. She was a drama side. And she had worked really, really hard for this performance that she was giving at this speech tournament. She went in the first time, and she came out shaken. I said, Stephanie, how'd it go? And she said, really, really bad. So we were all in the huge student cafeteria. It was one of those large high schools. And students gathered in the cafeteria. A lot of waiting between rounds for speech and debate tournaments. But Stephanie took her Walkman, her cassette Walkman, and had Pearl Jam 10. That was the major label debut of Pearl Jam. Crying, she went into a corner, put on the headphones, and pressed play. And for song after song, she would mouth every word to every song silently to herself. And you could see the strength returning. And then for two more rounds, she would go into the room, perform again, and it it just was not her day. She was off. Came back shaken and crying, but would go back to that same category in the cafeteria, press play, sing those songs again, and would regain strength. In those moments, Pearl Jam, Eddie Vedder, and the rest of the band, they were carrying her story. And for so many at that time and in that place, or whatever your music of choice, for Nirvana or Pearl Jam, at that point, they were singing our songs. And their raging against the dying of the light was our raging against the dying of our light. And their struggles were our struggles, and their victories were our victories. They carried our stories. And so even more, and supremely, let Jesus carry yours. 
When you're in those moments, maybe past, maybe present, when you're thinking to yourself, I'm done. I can't help. Whether you're somebody that's committed to Jesus already or you're still trying to figure faith out one way or another, welcome into our midst. And by faith, come empty to Jesus and say, I've got nothing. Jesus, carry me. You can even do that now. Jesus, I'm empty. I'm coming to you. Carry me. And even still, you might think, how, how does that work? How, how can I connect with Jesus in that way? It's a mystery for sure, but also a reality because of the Holy Spirit. And one of the glories of the Christian church throughout the ages is that the church has confessed that if you believe in Jesus, you're united to him, the unio cum Christo. You're united to Jesus so that your story is bound up in his story. Your life is bound up in his death. And his death and resurrection is your death and resurrection as now you receive the first fruits of Jesus' forgiveness and life all the way to a new exodus towards a new heaven, a new earth, where Jesus will advent again. That is your story. And when you engage in the rhythms and the devotionals, And remember, and as you sing the songs, you are placing yourself and asking the Holy Spirit, Jesus, put me in your story. And let Jesus carry you. So Jesus carries our story. He also carries our struggles. Jesus carries our struggles. And this is a really tough passage if you give it just a moment to let it sink in. The backdrop of this story is deep pathos. Herod the Great is killing all of these babies. This is a story of deep and abiding powerlessness. This is completely in character for Herod the Great, by the way. By all accounts in the ancient world, he was an evil, ruthless, paranoid, bloodthirsty leader. Very effective. A great, quote-unquote, governor, a gifted administrator, but that just means he turned machines of death all the more efficiently for everybody under him. Take this, for example. When Herod saw that he was terminally ill, he thought to himself, hey, when I die, I'm a little bit worried that people are going to be happy. I don't want people to be happy when I die. So he told his cabinet, his officials, go to nearby towns and villages, and on the day that I die, I want you to kill all their leaders so that we can ensure that on the day that I die, everybody's going to have something to cry about. Whenever Herod was threatened by members of his own family, he killed a wife of his. He killed children of his. So famous was Herod in his bloodthirstiness that Caesar Augustus, who ruled the whole empire, the first Roman empire, said specifically of Herod the Great, it's better, it's safer to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. Deep pathos. Imagine the national trauma both in itself, all of these Israelite male babies being slaughtered, but even looking back, it's triggering you to that ancient Exodus story where Pharaoh did the same thing. When Moses survived, it's happening again. Or looking around, infanticide was actually not that uncommon in the ancient world. I talked about that a little bit earlier this fall when we were talking about abortion and wrestling with that issue. So infanticide was practiced, but it was abhorred by ancient Israel, and the prophets invade against it deeply, not in our country. Don't kill the babies. And just imagine, 
on top of everything else. It's not just happening out there somewhere, but in our country, in our Judea, at the hand of a Jewish king. Deep powerlessness we see in this story. And not only that, but we see a refugee story here as well. Jesus did have to live like a refugee. It's a refugee story, echoes of the Passover, the flight from Egypt, in verse 14, and he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And they returned from exile, from being a refugee, but even then they were displaced. Verse 22, but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, Archelaus was one of the sons that survived, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So Joseph and Mary and the child, they couldn't go back to their home. And I think for us, if you think about the flight to Egypt of Joseph and Mary and Jesus at all, it's this dramatic story. It's romantic. And maybe even now you think about refugee stories. It's this wonderful adventure. It's not. It's really hard. One of the foremost commentators about refugees in the 20th century was a Palestinian scholar who worked in America, and his name was Edward Said. This is one of the things that he wrote about exile. The title is Reflections on Exile. Exile is strangely compelling to think about, but terrible to experience. It is the unhealable rift forced between a human being and a native place between the self and its true home. Its essential sadness can never be surmounted. And while it is true that literature and history contain heroic, romantic, glorious, even triumphant episodes in an exile's life, these are no more than efforts meant to overcome the crippling sorrow of estrangement. Achievements of exile are permanently undermined by the loss of something left behind forever. So against all of the stereotypes of Christian triumphalism, Jesus is far less comfortable in a narrative of Christian triumphalism as he is in a story like this, in a story of exile. This is me. This is powerlessness. This is what I am suffering through in my struggles for you and for your salvation. This is me. And so you're able to bring your suffering to Jesus, and whatever it is. Bring it to Jesus. Let him understand. Let him carry you a little bit. Where do you feel powerless? But we see in a story like this, as Jesus was a refugee, the flight to Egypt and the displaced return, God was at work in all of the nooks and crannies and crevices of that sad, powerless refugee story, and he's at work in yours. And we're called to pay it forward. One of the exciting things that we've been talking about among the, de the deacons here at Liberty Collingswood is we may have some opportunities for our congregation to engage in some refugee care. Ask me more about it. Ask a deacon about it. Lord, give us traction. Maybe this is something that we can do as one of the ways in which we can pay it forward and live, speak, and serve as Jesus' very presence here. Bring your struggles to Jesus. And likewise, your sin. Bring your sin to Jesus. I mentioned last week that there's this prophetic formula that runs throughout Matthew chapters 1 and 2 when something happens and Matthew, the author of the gospel, says, this was written to fulfill what was written by the prophets. And we have the last one in our last verse of the sermon text this morning. But it's also the most puzzling. And he went 
and lived in a city called Nazareth, so what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. If you go back and look at a Bible that has some cross-references, those are the little light-fonted numbers or letters that will say, oh, if you're reading this here, why don't you go back and look at this? The Old Testament quotations that are used in Matthew 1 and 2, they're referenced back to the originals, but in most study Bibles or cross-references, they might not give you anything here because scholars aren't quite sure what is Matthew referring to here. There's no verse in the Old Testament that says exactly he will be called a Nazarene. There's no consensus, but I will mention there is consensus On one hand, saying, we're not sure what's going on here, but very few scholars are saying that Matthew had no idea what he was doing. People aren't saying Matthew's making a mistake here because all over Matthew's gospel, he is a Hebrew scriptures, Old Testament scholar par excellence. No way was Matthew just having a bad Bible day here. But then the flip side is, we're not exactly sure what he's doing. But one of the prominent theories, and this is where I land my plan on the issue, is that he shall be called a Nazarene in Matthew 2.23 is a quote and a reference back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. And I'll read it for you now. See if you hear it. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and the branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Do you hear the connection? You don't hear it at all in English. But there's a wordplay going on in the original language, the Hebrew here, He will be called a Nazarene. That word Nazarene, the root Nazir, is the same word as branch. He will be called a branch. And in God's providence, it just so happens that as Jesus settles in Nazareth, he's a Nazarene. It's as if Matthew is saying, we told you all along, he is this branch. And unlike Hosea 11.1, Isaiah 11.1, you better believe that was messianic. For generations of Jewish readers, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and the branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Well, that's the Messiah. That's Jesus. And so through Jesus and his story, we are able to take a journey from stump to leaf, which gives us life and hope. And a stump means a tree has been cut down. And so Jesus was laid on two beams placed perpendicular to one another on a cross. And that's where he suffered and died for our sin. He took it upon himself. He bore it all the way to make atonement for us, to be our substitute. Father, let me conquer and absorb that debt for sin on the cross that there might be life for Everybody that comes to me, forgiveness and renewal for all the ages on down the line, all the way to the new heavens and the new earth. And so as we wrap up, we look earlier in Matthew chapter 2 and say we would join the wise men in worshiping this Jesus. But we look forward and say in our sin we have joined the crowds, saying crucify him. It's not just the sin out there and around us. It's not just the struggle out there and within us. But we are perpetrators of Christmas mess like anybody else and all year around. But Jesus of Nazareth bore in his story both your struggle and your sin. What's your story? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, 
The odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.